Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 1 through 39. Mark, chapter 15, verses 1 through 39. We'll, rather than read through it all in one reading, uh, we're going to read it in portions. And so, our first portion will be verses 1 to 5, and I'll encourage you to look in your Bible and follow as I read. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing. So that Pilate marveled. We're considering today Good Friday. It's Palm Sunday. In our calendar, we focus on the gathering on Thursday night. We don't do a, a Good Friday service, but I, and it's always felt important to me that we have to consider the cross before we come to Resurrection Day. But to, So today, we want to again consider the cross. And, and with it, as with so many things of Scripture... It's easy for us to, to almost become too familiar with the cross, to, to kind of take it for granted, to not consider the depths of what it means. And so, by God's grace, maybe I can help open a door to each of our hearts to, to consider a greater uh, understanding and, a, and, and, and an appreciation for what Christ did on the cross Mark opens, and you'll notice he begins with that, that word immediately. And was, if we were going through the Gospel of Mark, I'd call to your attention that that's one of Mark's favorite words. You know, he, he, he likes to keep things moving. He's, he, he's a, he has a fast-moving narrative as he walks through uh, his accounting of the life of Christ and his work. And so he begins by saying, Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders, the scribes, the whole council. He, he includes everybody. In other words, the Sanhedrin and other of the, of the religious leaders. The chief priests were of the Sadducean order. The elders and scribes would have been the Pharisees. The whole council, that's the, the Sanhedrin. So this is like a, a gathering of the Supreme Court as well as a number of the, the other religious leaders that were highly regarded by them. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, we're told. It's Friday morning in the, at this point in the, in the narrative. The previous night, Thursday, the Lord had that Passover with his disciples. Uh, we often call it the Last Supper. It was his last meal. And so often as, we, as I think of that, that evening, I, I, I think of how often some of the most important words people have said have been those last conversations, especially when someone knows uh, the end is near. Every word is treasured. Uh, unfortunately, the disciples still didn't get that. They still didn't quite comprehend this is the last time. Jesus even says, this is the last time I will partake of this meal with you until the, past, until the kingdom. But they didn't quite get it. But we'll talk more about that on Thursday evening to consider all that was going on in that evening. But after that Passover Seder meal, 
the Lord and his disciples went out and, and walked down across the Kidron Valley uh, into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now that's a, uh, Gethsemane simply means a, uh, an oil press. It was the Mount of Olives. And there in this garden area down there was a kind of a, the, uh, Judas knew he could find Jesus there when they were going to capture him. So it was a common place for our Lord to go. And, and, and to be quietly in prayer. There's something about a, you can go to that, uh, all, the Mount of Olives today, you can go into that garden today, and you see these large, ancient olive trees, over a thousand years old, and walk there and, and can sense just the, a, a place of prayer. And so Jesus led his disciples there so he could pray. Again, they didn't fully comprehend. Remember, he finds them falling asleep and, and, and says, what's going on? You, you, you couldn't watch and wait with me? Can you imagine how you would feel if you knew you were about to be arrested, taken off, and executed the next day, and your closest friends with, and who you've given your life to them are, are nodding off while you're praying and feeling so much the need for their support? But... That's what happened. And while they were praying in the garden, Judas leads the crowd of, of uh, Roman soldiers to come and arrest him. Remember, he, he, they're not sure how do you identify Jesus. And, and he says, I'll, I'll give him a, a kiss of greeting. And Jesus will even say, will you betray me with a kiss? From there, he was led and, and uh, to, subjected to really two Jewish trials. Uh, one was rather an informal hearing in the, in the home of uh, Annas, and the other was a, a, a formal meeting. So the first one was more of a hearing, then there was a formal trial uh, in the home of Caiaphas, high priests. And, and they, so they, they brought in witnesses, they brought in accusations, they, they tried to have a trial, but according to you know, Jewish law, they couldn't at that time, actually cast a, 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 a sentence in a capital offense. So it's not till Friday morning that that happens, and that's in verse 1. In the morning, the chief priests held a consultation, a gathering. And, and, and they gathered them all together. They bound Jesus and led him off to Pilate. So they, they passed sentence on him, and they bound him. Have you ever noticed it, 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 it in trials, if you ever see anything in, in like the news, when someone's going into a trial, it says something different, isn't it? When you see them in shackles, handcuffs, um, it, it, that just communicates something. And so they bound Jesus when they brought him to Pilate. This man's dangerous. Uh, he, he's, he's an insurrectionist. He, he's going to be a, cause a threat to our land. Why did they even bother going to Pilate? Well, that was because of the again the, they were a, a land they were a country under subjection, they were under Roman rule, and so Rome uh, gave them. It, it worked out better to give each local districts their own government, but everything was subject to Rome's authority, and Rome held to itself the power of life and death. And so, if they were going to execute Jesus, it had to be the Romans that would do it. And so they were going to have to convince Pilate to execute Jesus. They did that, so they brought him to Pilate so he could be killed. 
That was the only solution they could find to the problems Jesus had caused for them. But they brought him to Pilate too because Pilate could crucify him. And I believe that was a part of their intention. You see, crucifixion uh, is, is compared to being um, on a tree. Paul makes that point in Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 13. He said, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I think the high priests and, and, and the, the, the rest of the council understood if Jesus is crucified, that will, that will scream to our population. He's accursed by God. And that's, that comes from Deuteronomy 21, 23. He who is hanged is accursed of God. So they wanted him not only dead, but they wanted it clear he's cursed. Don't follow him or his teachings. Verse 2, Pilate asked Jesus, are, are you the king of the Jews? And so by then, the, the, they've already brought their accusations. He, you see, the, they understood you couldn't come before Pilate and say he's a blasphemer. He makes himself equal with God. They, they worshipped all kinds of gods, and that gave them a certain sense of latitude. Okay, as long as you also worship the emperor, wh- whoever else you want to add to the list is okay with us. And, and they didn't want to get involved in doctrinal issues these Jews were debating. It's as, as if you maybe made a, brought someone in, in, to the district attorney and said, I want to file charges. What are your charges? He's post-tribulational in his view of the rapture. That's worth at least 10 years in prison, isn't it? Get out of my office. <laughs> That's your business. You guys figure that stuff out. Come back when you have a real crime. And so they knew they couldn't just come with religious objections. And so, well, he, he's claiming to be Messiah. And so that that's, means he claims to be king. He, he claims to be the king of the Jews. And there's only one king. You can't have two kings. You can have many gods, but you can only have one king, and that's the emperor. And so now it's a political issue. And so they say he's, uh, he claims to be the king of the Jews. And so, so Pilate asks him, do you claim to be the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers him very simply, uh, as you say, or, or so you say. But what that means is, um, just as you said it, yes, I'm the king of the Jews. He doesn't deny it, but he very simply says, that, that's it. You said it. Then the chief priests were told in verse 3, started hurling further accusations. They, they accused him of many things. And so they started adding to it and saying all kinds of things. Uh, but Jesus stood quietly before them. Remember in this that, that Pilate, and there's many ways we think of him, Pilate is an experienced Roman soldier. Pilate is a Roman governor or precept. And, uh, and, and he, um, he's, been, he's done a lot of trials. He's seen a lot of, of different situations. And so, you know, after a while, I'm sure you get a feel for it. And he's seen all kinds of reactions to Jesus standing in silence. Now, there might be some that they're so guilty that they're 
They're cravenly silent or, or morosely, depressingly silent. Jesus stood with, with a regal nobility of silence. With all these people hurling. You know, have you, you've, you've experienced at times people saying unkind things and it stings and it hurts to stand there and all these lies to be said. You, it's easy to get angry to want to lash back and to answer. Jesus stood with messianic nobility and answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, said, do you answer nothing? That's verse 4. See how many things they testify against you. Are you listening? Do you hear all these charges? He's, he's trying to, by this time he's already, already, I think, trying to help him. Pilate was an experienced politician. If, if Jesus were a dangerous criminal, he would have known by now and would be glad to receive him. But there's something wrong here. Why are these religious leaders bringing one of their rabbis to be crucified? This doesn't smell right. There's something going on here. And I think quickly he's figuring out they're threatened by Jesus. They want me to do the dirty work. Their issue is a rabbinic competition sort of thing. They don't like him because he doesn't fall in line with them. He can tell this, isn't, this is no, this is a, a phony trial. And imagine he's starting to resent that he's being, they're trying to push him into a corner to do their dirty work. So he, he said, Jesus, come on, give me, give, give me some ammunition here. Answer their accusations. But Jesus still answered nothing. And it says, Pilate marveled because he sees a quiet strength and dignity that hasn't stood before him in trial before. And also it fulfills a prophecy. In Isaiah 53, 7, Isaiah 53, 7, Isaiah 53, of course, one of the key passages on the suffering of Christ. In verse 7, at the end of the verse, it says, As a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he, the Messiah, opened not his mouth. I saw a, a, a demonstration of a, a sheep shearing one time. i try and say sheep shearing really quickly a few times. <laughs> Uh, they were using clippers and uh, and and this she, this big sheep and they were just pulling you know cutting off the the, the wool and they had they be, and as they did it they said oh by the way this this the sheep is not drugged in other words it was so complacent you know if you were trying to do the same thing to a lot of dogs you you know you'd have a muzzle on you'd be wrestling not the sheep and so Jesus was like that sheep quiet before its shears. Now let me read verses 6 to 14 as we see how the, the issue of Barabbas comes up. Now at the feast, he, Pilate, was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them and whomever, whomever, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. And then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. 
But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. And Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him! The Romans did have a, a legal principle that, a, uh, that the judge could let the, could let the crowd decide. I'm glad we don't follow that principle. But Rome's biggest concern ultimately was not justice. It was order. And if you could keep the crowd under control by giving them what they want, that could work. And so... Uh, Pilate had an annual event where he would, uh, it would kind of build goodwill. I'll let go one of your prisoners. Again, he, he's sensing, you know, the religious leaders are pulling this off. They're, they're envious. They're jealous of Jesus and the crowds that follow him and his popularity. He thought maybe by going to the people, he could work around. Jesus was he, believe me, he'd heard of Jesus. Well, we see, you know, we won't see this, but when he sent off to Herod, Herod has heard all about it. He's hoping he'll see some miracles. They, they, they'd heard of Jesus. And he'd heard of his popularity. It kind of made him nervous. But, but he's counting on to popularity. Who, who do you want me to release to you? And, and, and the, you know, the issue came up with about Barabbas, and, and he thought he had a good deal going on here. If I, I'm going to offer them a popular, uh, charismatic teacher or a murderous, robbing criminal. Shall I release the beloved preacher or a terrorist? Which would you like? It's kind of like going to a car dealer. So I'm going to make you a deal today. I'm going to give you a free car. Over here, the rent rec reject. And over here, whatever you want, whatever SUV you want, fully loaded. And you know which way it's going to go, right? Well, I'll take the rent erect, not on your life. <laughs> uh, no, I'll take the, and he started looking at which is the most expensive. He thought for sure they're going to go for Jesus. They'll work around. He thought he had to figure it figured out. He's a, he's a polished politician. He knew how to work that in. And so they're, they're, they're not going to want me to release a, a murderous terrorist. But they did. He underestimated the influence of the chief priests. For one thing, I think they'd stack the deck. They made sure their crowd was, was, was in the crowd and full of it, the crowd. And I wonder if the other side of that is, this, and you see this sometimes in the politics of our day. You know, if someone from the other party speaks, it must be wrong. You just assume it. You're going to argue against it just because you don't like who said it. Well, so the question is, do I go with our Jewish leaders or do I go with Rome? That's almost like a betrayal. If the Jewish leaders say uh, one thing, then we're going to stick together. It's us against Rome. 
he, he was kind of counting on the popularity issue and the justice issue. He forgot about the anti-Rome issue. And especially during the holidays. And remember, this is, they're celebrating Passover. When God liberated them from the oppression of a Gentile pagan country. What a burr it was under the saddle to be under a Gentile pagan country's oppression again. And with all that going on, so we basically they're seeing it. Do we follow the priests or do we follow Pilate? We'll go with the priests. And so the, so the, the crowd was stacked the, the, and they were working around, you know, call for, call for Barabbas, call for Barabbas. And so the crowd chose the murderous terrorist over Jesus. They chose the murderer instead of the one who had raised the dead. Verse 12 and following, Pilate answered and said to them, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him! And he said, Why? What has he done? And they cried all the more, Crucify him! Why would they want to crucify such a popular rabbi? What's going on here? We'll say in a minute, and I'm not going to get too much into it, but crucifixion was the most horrific of torturous executions. Um, in, in proper company, you didn't, you, you didn't mention crucifixion. It was not something polite people talked about. A Roman citizen could not be crucified. It, was, it would bring too much shame on the empire. Why crucifixion for a popular rabbi? A healer. 15 to 20, Pilate, wanted, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. There they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off, put those clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. He wanted to please the crowd. The way I see it, the Roman governors had two jobs. Keep the peace and keep the tax revenue flowing to Rome. Pilate had already in his career dealt with Jewish riots. And this was not a good time. He had a mentor who kind of looked out for him and paved the way for him and kept him secure in his position. He had recently was no longer of influence. So Pilate was kind of hanging out there. The last thing he needed were questions of a political nature. In fact, in the other Gospels, we'll read, you know, if you don't crucify him, you're no friend of Caesar. That's actually technical language saying, we will report you as not loyal to Caesar. And they, they would do that kind of thing. They would send emissaries to Rome to complain. And he thought, I do not need that. Warren Wearsby 
describes Pilate's actions this way. Pilate did not ask, is it right? Instead, he asked, is it safe? Is it popular? I fear too often that's, that's the difference between a, a politician and a statesman. A politician is, you know, finger to the wind, which way is the current going? Whatever will gain me favor, will gain me votes, keep my position. A statesman is more concerned about what's the right thing to do, what will be well for the country, what will leave a lasting legacy. Pilate just wanted to keep his own life and, and job secure. So he released Barabbas to them. He delivered Jesus after he'd scourged him to be crucified. In that bow to the crowd, he sentenced Jesus to the most horrific execution known. Have you ever heard the word excruciating? Right in the middle of that word is the word for crucifixion. It's the very essence of torturous painful. They led him away into the, into the hall called the Praetorium, and there they mockingly beat him. There's only passingly comments about his scourging. Uh, that was a part of the process, and scourging itself was such, was such a, a brutal form of flogging that often it was fatal. And again, I'm going, to be, I'm, I'm going to try to sanitize my description of these things. I don't want to get too much into the details. But they were horrib- these, these Roman soldiers were horribly brutal in the way they treated Jesus, beating him, scourging him, mocking him. Why? What did they have against Jesus? I think this is more, this is their chance to vent against the Jews. They hated the Jews. They hated everything about the Jews. They were different. They weren't good Roman citizens. They didn't worship good Roman gods. They would not worship the emperor. They had all kinds of rules that didn't fit with Roman life. They hated him. Anti-Semitism was, is nothing new. And so here, who, here's one who comes in who's, who's one of their popular teachers and, and, and king of the Jews. So they're mocking the, they're mocking the Jews more than Jesus. And they're venting their hatred on the Jews as they vent their hatred on Jesus. And, so, and they gathered everyone in, all the, all the troops in. This is fun. Let's, let's make a show of this. And, and, that, and I cannot comprehend, but that is part of man's nature throughout history. How so many will come for the show of an execution. The more brutal, the better. The Romans in their Colosseum would have terrible, horrific shows. The more brutal, the better. So here they came to mock Jesus, beating him, spitting at him, putting a crown of thorns instead of a crown of gold, and then and acting like they're bowing before him and, and, and honoring him as a king. I have to think of them as they bow before him and, and oh, hail, king of the Jews. One day they will find themselves bowing before him again. Can you imagine the horror to look and see the face that they had seen before? No longer a tortured victim. 
but the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the sovereign of the universe and the, and the almighty judge. Philippians 2.10 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. They will bow again before him with a different outcome. So when they had treated him so disrespectfully, so brutally, so horrifically, that already his, weak, his, his physical strength was diminished, they led him off to crucify him. Verses 21 to 28. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the inscription of the accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And so the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he was numbered among, numbered with the transgressors. We're told as they led him out, and this was part of the process, the, per, the victim had to bear at least the cross member of the cross to his place of execution. Around his neck would be strung a sign bearing the inscription of the charge against him. And as Jesus, so brutally scourged and beaten, uh, was no longer strong enough to go, they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian. Cyrene is, is in uh, northern Africa. They didn't know who he was. It says he was coming in from the country. And, uh, the word country in Greek is agru agricultural in other words he was coming in from outside the city was, did he live in the city was he a you know kind of a newcomer to Jerusalem was he just coming in he was out visiting he was there for the Passover we're not told but but he, it seems like he had maybe was now a citizen of the area and and he was coming in and just he just he wasn't there to see Jesus the execution he was there just he was just passing by and they compelled him as Romans had authority to do said you carry his cross we're told interestingly enough about Simon he was the father of Alexander and Rufus when you read that you have to assume that means something to his audience the, the, the gospel of Mark is written by Mark and uh, the best understanding is he had a, a Roman audience in mind uh, and so it seems that the people in Rome would know who Alexander and Rufus are, the sons of Simon. And so he was told to take up his cross. Do you recognize the phrase? Jesus told his disciples when he called the people to himself with disciples, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. It's the same language here. Simon had to take up the cross of Jesus. As I said, uh, Simon has sons that are known to the Roman audience, apparently, and that comes up in the book of Romans. Mark, in chapter 16, verse 13, says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. So apparently Paul, having come to faith, 
came to know uh, Alexander and Rufus and came to, and, and maybe even Simon, but it's, it's Rufus and his mother that are in Rome. And he even says, and she's a mother to me. She's a mother to me in the faith. And so, so Paul, as a new convert, apparently had the privilege of getting to know at least the wife and sons of the man who carried the cross. And then he says, it says, they brought him to a place, Golgotha. That's Aramaic for meaning the place of the skull. In one of the Greek passages, it says it was the cranium. It was the place of, the, of a cranium, the skull. Why was it called that? We don't know. Uh, the one traditional place that is considered, there's a hill that looks like a skull. And they to, it was, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh, and he refused it. There was a, a group of women in Jerusalem that had a ministry of mercy to the victims of crucifixion. They, they put together the money and the, the material so they could offer them wine mixed with myrrh. It had a narcotic effect, and it might help dull just a little the pain of crucifixion. But Jesus wanted a clear mind for the task that was upon him. And so he declined it. We're told they, when they crucified him, they divided his garments. Um, that was one of the privileges of a Roman soldier involved in a crucifixion. He got the personal effects of the person. And, gar- and clothing was valuable back then. You couldn't uh, go to Walmart and get you know, a, a basket full of, of textile clothing. Uh, it was all hand done, and so it was expensive. When they crucified him, it says, they divided his garments. Have you ever noticed how, go through the Gospels. They don't describe the crucifixion of Jesus. Mark just says they crucified him and leaves it at that. And I think that's guidance for us. We won't go into the details. But consider what Psalm 22 tells us, verses 16 and 17. Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. A very good summary of crucifixion written a thousand years before Christ and at least uh, four, three, four hundred years before the Roman Empire had begun. And yet the Romans invented crucifixion. Again, the men there who were crucifying, they got the garments. And again, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen is fulfilled. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Isn't that amazing? A thousand years before Christ, David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, described the crucifixion of Christ down to what they did with his garments. And we're told it was the third hour, which is start, the Jewish reckoning starts at 6 a.m. Third hour, 9 a.m. And yes, that means uh, the trial is early. The, the workday among the Romans was six a, started at 6 a.m. And that inscription, again, would have been the crime of guilt he would have carried. Luke tells us it was in three languages. An inscription, Luke 23, 38, 
An inscription was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. He was crucified, we're told, with two robbers, one on each side. That was just one more way of saying, you are not, you're just one of the scum of the earth. You're getting the treatment of the lowest of criminals in this land. He was in poor company. The good shepherd was in the company of the vilest of criminals. And Isaiah 53, 12 is quoted, he was numbered with the transgressors. He was just considered another common criminal. The only sinless one who had ever lived, the one who could stand in the temple and say to the crowd, um, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. The one who could stand before the Sanhedrin and say, please tell me my sin. Verses 29 to 36, those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put on a breed, offered to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Others were saying, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and Take him down. So those who passed by blasphemed. When they crucified, it was always on the side of a road. This was meant to be a terribly uh, public execution as a warning to everyone else. You do not want to do this. And so they put him right there at the main road going into Jerusalem. There during the festival. There he was as a symbol to all. Do not, do not buck Rome. The passers-by mocked him. The chief priests mocked him. The men, two men, on, one on each side, in the last bits of their energy, wasted it mocking Jesus. One had a change of heart, Luke tells us. As he, finally, he changed his mind, and he says, one of the criminals, verse, Luke 23, verses 3, 39 to 43, one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. The other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? Seeing you're under the same condemnation, we indeed justly. We receive due rewards for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. That's called repentance. He sees his guilt, and, the, and he says, This is just. I deserve to be on this cross. He doesn't, and you know that as well. Remember, then he appealed to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus, in in a loose translation, said, I'll do you one better. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. The sixth hour was noon, the brightest part of the day. And darkness for three hours fell upon the, the land. That was a sign of God's judgment 
But I want you to think about that darkness on Thursday night. There'll be a time when we will um, dip our finger into the juice and nine and ten times we will name the plagues, the juice reminding us of the, the, the blood of the Passover, but we, we will count off the ten plagues that God sent against Egypt, the frogs and the plagues of all sorts. Number nine, the, the second to last, darkness. And after the judgment of darkness, the death of the firstborn. And the only protection from that curse was to come under the blood of the Lamb. For those who believed in the Lord enough to take his message to heart, would kill that Passover lamb, put it on their doorposts and lintel, so that God would pass over that home. Darkness before the death of the firstborn. Can you imagine as that, that night, that night Jewish families are around their their lamb meal and going through the ceremony and they're counting off the plagues. You know, it's meant to be a time to teach the children. We'll talk about that Thursday night. And when they're counting off the plagues, you can almost hear as one go, as they say, darkness. One of the children crying out, Daddy, darkness. Was it like today at noon? Was that a judgment from God too? Never mind, eat your heart horseradish. How that must have spoken to some, if not at the time. There as they considered darkness, death of the firstborn, the blood of the Lamb. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, he's, there's a whole sermon in that cry. It's quoting from Psalm 22, again, a thousand years before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, the Son, forsaken by the Father? David Johnson spoke to us about the second imputation, when our sin was put on Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That darkness, the time of God's judgment, God turning his face away from his son as he poured out the wrath, infinite wrath on sin. As he cried out, Eli, Eli, or Eloi, Eloi, some thought it sounded like Elijah, or they just wanted to make fun of it. Those must have been the Jews. No Roman's going to think about Elijah. He's calling for Elijah. Someone in mercy said, I'm going to give a, a, a taste of vinegar to, to help. That was thought to give you some strength and to satisfy thirst. And so he kindly offered it to him. And then verses 37 to 39. See, Jesus died, the curtain torn, and the centurion convinced. 
Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And then the veil of the temple was torn in two and top to bottom. When the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. He cried with a loud voice. People at the verge of death don't, on the cross like that, part of the, the whole death process is suffocation. I won't get into details, but he cried out with strength and that little bit of vinegar helped him. We get a fuller report from two verses. John 19.30. John 19.30 tells us when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Luke 23.46 adds, Luke 23.46, when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. His mission accomplished. Our sin debt paid in full. He put his spirit in the hands of the Father and joined him in glory. Just a few hours later, much to his amazement, the thief joined him. What am I doing here? Which will probably be the first thought of many of us in glory. What am I doing here? The veil was torn in two. This is the veil that stood between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. Only once a year would the high priest be allowed to go past that veil to uh, offer incense and put the blood of the, the, the Day of Atonement lamb upon that blood, on, upon the mercy seat. That veil. We're told that the veil was uh, 40 cubits long, that's 60 feet, 20 cubits wide, that's 30 feet. And had the thickness of the palm of the hand. That's about four inches. Now, if you want an experiment, go home and check, a, check the thickest towel you have and try and, try and tear that in half. That's not, that's not four inches thick of fabric. It was torn like crepe paper top to bottom to make clear where the judgment was coming from. A judgment on the temple and the people of the temple. And also a symbol of the opening of the way into God's presence through Christ. And the centurion stood opposite, we're told in verse 39. He cried out like this, and when he saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last. He'd heard, he'd heard many, he'd heard the mockery and the cursing of the other criminals. But Jesus, praying for forgiveness of others giving instructions for the care of his mother. Maybe that centurion had heard him teach or heard of him. But our passage ends with the centurion. It was John Wayne's greatest line in history, as far as I'm concerned, in the movie The Greatest Story, as he cries out, truly, this man was the son of God. He was convinced. Tradition tells us, gives us a, gives a name to him and tells us uh, that he was a believer. Sure looks like it to me. What a spectacle of faith that is and what, a, what a, an indictment of the Jewish people around him. They knew the scriptures. They watched it fulfilled in their presence. Isaiah, the Psalms. And yet they mocked and despised their Messiah. 
a Roman Gentile centurion could see better. So this is the Son of God. I wonder if he quaked with fear, just the presence of being there is supervising the team. Truly, this man was the Son of God. The religious people denied Jesus because he didn't fit into their mold. The common people denied him because he didn't meet their expectations. So often, you talk to people about Jesus, you talk to people about the God of the Bible, they say, well, my God wouldn't do that. Well, your God is a fiction. Deal with reality. But they rejected him because he didn't meet their, what they thought God should do, what they thought Messiah should do. And they were in unbelief. The centurion and the thief, isn't that... In the Roman mind, you couldn't get two more opposite people. They agreed. They bowed to him. And give an example to each of us, if you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, bow before the Messiah, your maker, your savior. And as we who know Christ enter into this holy season, May God stir up in us a heart of worship, a heart of love, of adoration for the Son of God who came to take away our sin, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. These words are more than we can comprehend. His grace, more his sacrifice, more than we can comprehend. But Father, grow us in our understanding and grow us in our appreciation. And even as we now come to this table, Father, let us remember with love and worship. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.